We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. How satisfied are you? Call it an educated guess, but I would wager that most of us here today would indicate that we are less than satisfied with our prayer life. We we are more likely to have negative feelings about our ability to pray. And listen, it's not because this particular group in this room is somehow worse at prayer than other groups of people in other rooms. And it's most certainly not because we feel that God has not been faithful to us. Nothing could be further from the truth. Instead, I think the reason we tend to be less than satisfied in prayer is because the Christian life involves an inherent conundrum. And that conundrum is this. As Christians, we have both a glorious invitation and a serious problem. We have a glorious invitation and simultaneously, we have a serious problem. Let me, let me sort of flesh this out so you can see what I'm saying. The glorious invitation we've received is that we are invited to have communion with the living God through prayer. In Christ, that is the the calling that has been extended to us. So just just think about it. The Lord our God, the maker of, of heaven and earth, the God who reigns as king over all times, places, peoples, and events, The God who is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. This God invites us to come to him in prayer. We see this woven throughout the scriptures. Let me give you just a few examples of what I'm talking about. I love what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 7. Moses says to the people of Israel. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Or think about 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is a a passage that many of us would be familiar with it. In it, God tells the people of Israel, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Psalm chapter 6. David finds himself in some serious trouble. He calls out to God and he says things like this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Be gracious to me, David cries. Heal me. Deliver my life, Lord. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. But then just listen to what David says in verse 9. He says, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Just consider that. Consider that that, that David has assurance that his prayer has been heard because he knows the invitation he has received. He knows that he is invited to come before God in prayer. What about the son of David? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, 
Jesus tells his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, our invitation, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers to his harvest. As followers of Jesus, we are called to pray that more and more workers would be raised up for the mission of God in the world. The need for workers is great. And how will that need be met? It will be met, Jesus says, through prayer. And then there's Philippians 4.6, where Paul tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to So the simple fact is that over and over again, the scriptures are issuing this glorious invitation to us through his word. God is is calling us to come to him in prayer. Let me give you just one more scripture. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It says this, that this is the confidence we have toward him. This is the confidence that we have toward our God in heaven, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So everything that we need from our Father, everything that we have been longing for and looking for, all of it can be accessed if we will just come before him and ask him according to his will. But therein lies the conundrum. The conundrum is that we don't always know how to ask. This is our greatest problem in prayer, that for any number of reasons, we fail to grasp what the will of God actually is. And what ends up happening is that this this glorious invitation we've received, it gets turned into a serious problem that we don't have the resources on our own to fix. In fact, that's the entire Assumption that lies behind our passage for today. Paul says in verse 26, we don't always pray as we ought to pray. Yes, we've received the invitation. We get to come and, and, and pray and commune with the living God. But when it comes to making the most of that invitation, we simply do not have what it takes. Because even though God has redeemed us in Christ, Even though he is in the process of renewing our lives day by day by day, it's still the case that we have not yet been entirely delivered from the effects of life in this sinful world. Which means that there are things that remain in our lives that can cause difficulty when it comes to prayer. I think it's actually helpful for us to name what some of these difficulties are. So let's do that together. Let's consider some of the things that can hinder prayer. I'll mention four hindrances to prayer. Four hindrances to prayer. I'll start with the ones that that Paul seems to have in mind as he's writing this passage. He says in verse 26, that one of the reasons we don't always pray as we ought is because we simply don't know how. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what it is that we should be praying for. So the first hindrance to prayer I want to mention is that we are ignorant. We're ignorant about the will of God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 gives us some insight as to why this is the case. It tells us, 
that the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So, so on the one hand, we can be thankful that the knowledge we have about God is sufficient for us, right? Second Peter verse Verse 3 of chapter 1, it assures us that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So God isn't isn't holding out on you. He's, He's not withholding from you some piece of information that you need in order to live a life that's pleasing to him. However, on the other hand, when it comes to the things of God, there is infinitely more that we are quite simply ignorant about. There are countless things we don't know about God's will for our lives. And Paul is assuming in this passage that this, our ignorance, can affect the dynamics of our prayer life. Then there's suffering. So not only do we have the the limitations of our ignorance, but related to that, we also experience the anguish of of suffering in this life. If you were to, to zoom out from verses 26 and 27, And if you were to look more broadly at Romans chapter 8, one of the things you're going to see is that suffering is very much on Paul's mind. He says, for instance, in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul will go on to say that all of creation, right, the the entire cosmos is is groaning for redemption from the curse of Adam and from its effects that that cause us affliction. The idea that Paul is getting across is that before we come to, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, we will first travel through the valley of the shadow of death. And it will be worth it. But still... Still, that's not an easy journey to make. It will be fraught with all sorts of suffering. Imposed upon us will be sufferings that are situational in nature. The circumstances of our lives will yield affliction. One way or another, at some point, suffering will come for all of us. For reasons that we don't understand. God will permit us to be hard-pressed by rejection, fractured relationships, frustrated efforts, physical sickness. Or what about mental sickness, mental suffering, mental health? Some of our sufferings will not be entirely situational. They will instead originate from within. If If the statistics are correct, then there's a considerable amount of people here today who wake up every morning with some sort of mental affliction. Whatever anyone wants to say about it, it, it's impossible to to deny that, that we are living through a mental health crisis. Many of us have been hindered from prayer by what feels like crippling depression or uncontrollable anxiety or, or perhaps a personality disorder. There can be no doubt, friends, that the different forms of suffering we experience in this life will affect our communion with God. We can often feel exasperated by this. When our our afflictions take a turn for the worse, 
Like when that happens, how on earth are we supposed to pray? It can be hard to know. For instance, when we are physically sick, should we pray for healing? Or should we pray for strength to endure? Of course, neither of those things would be wrong to pray for. It would be right to pray for both of them. But at the same time, doesn't it feel like a little bit like you're, you're shooting into the dark? Don't you ever feel at a loss for how to pray specifically about your situation? Friends, we don't know exactly what it is that God wants to accomplish through our suffering. Paul experienced something like this in his own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells us that he prayed three times for his affliction, the thorn in his flesh to be removed, only to learn that that wasn't God's will. Paul would not be alleviated. He would not be released from his suffering, which is something that many of us in this room today know all too well. What about distraction? Not only do we carry ignorance with us into prayer, not only do we experience suffering, but we must also contend with unremitting distraction. And this is true for us now more than ever before. None of us needs to be convinced about technology's hypercolonization over our lives, right? This is, this is self-evident by this point. I've heard on more than one occasion the claim that the average American now has a shorter attention span than a goldfish. Now, I don't know if that's true. Sounds like it may not be. Goldfish don't listen to sermons, right? You're sitting here listening intently, or at least you're looking like you're listening intently. Thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> but the fact that that claim sounds remotely plausible says a lot about the moment we are now living in. Just think about it. How many times have you been, have you started praying only to be interrupted by your inability to concentrate? How often does that happen? How, how many times have you been lured away from communion with God by that buzzing, chirping, flickering rectangle that fits in your back pocket? We are a people easily distracted. And then on top of our ignorance, our suffering, and our distractedness piled on all of that is our sinfulness. We are sinners by nature. We find ourselves beset with sin. And out of all of the hindrances to prayer that I've mentioned, this one is by far the most dangerous. 1 Peter chapter 3, husbands are told to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers may not be hindered. Peter is saying there that a, a husband who mistreats his wife will inevitably be hindered in prayer. Why? Because the way that we treat others affects how we relate to God. You cannot trample on God's image in another person and then expect to thrive in prayer. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and while you're there, you remember that a brother has something against you, well, then leave your gift. Forget about it for the time being, and go to your brother immediately and be reconciled. Make it right, and then come and worry about the gift. 
What Jesus is demonstrating is that if some sin is festering in your life, do not expect that you can come before God in prayer and pretend that 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 doesn't need to be dealt with, that sin. Now, you may be hearing all that I'm saying, and you may be thinking to yourself, man, this this is starting to sound really discouraging, not encouraging, discouraging. You're painting a pretty bleak picture here. I mean, I came to church for some good news this morning, and this doesn't sound like it's it. You wouldn't be wrong to think that way. You wouldn't be wrong to think that way at all. Like, if all of this is true, if everything I'm saying is indeed the case, then when it comes to prayer, there is a great deal working against us. There's ignorance, there's suffering, there's distraction. And if all that wasn't bad enough, there's the problem of our sin. John Bunyan, the 17th century English preacher who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about feeling this. He himself experienced the conundrum of the Christian life. Just listen to how he describes it. He says, may I, may I but speak my own experience and from that tell you the difficulty of praying to God as I ought. Bunyan says, many times I know not what to pray for. I am so blind. Nor how to pray. I am so ignorant. Oh, the starting holes that the heart hath in times of prayer. None knows how many are the byways of the heart. Nor its back lanes to slip away from the presence of God. How much is its pride if enabled with expressions? How much its hypocrisy if prayer be before others? And how little conscience is there made of prayer? Between God and the soul in secret. So if John Bunyan felt this way, good grief, what hope is there for you and me? I mean, can anything be done about this conundrum we find ourselves in? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this is exactly what our passage is about. What Paul is telling us in these two verses is not that there is something that we can do about the conundrum of prayer. We can't solve this. Like, in this passage, you will find no tips or techniques for prayer. You will find no five steps to a better prayer life. Paul will offer you no formula for communion with God. No, far from that. Instead of telling us what we can do about the conundrum, Paul is reminding us of what has already been done about the conundrum, and what is being done about the conundrum. Our problem of being too weak to pray, that problem was solved in Acts chapter 2. If you are beset with ignorance, suffering, distraction, and sin, if you are weaker than you can say, and your prayer life is absolutely tanking because of that, well then just follow me. Follow me as I take you to an upper room off a busy street in the city of Jerusalem. It is there that a small band of disciples is locked away, hiding in the dark, fumbling their way through their prayers. Their Messiah has been raised from the dead. He remained with them for about 40 days. He he stood before them in his glorified resurrection body and he taught them about the kingdom of God. It had been the best 40 days of their lives. But now he has gone back to his father. 
And these disciples feel as if they have been left alone. Their Messiah is gone. So what do they do? What do they do? They wait. After all, that's what Jesus had told them to do. Go to Jerusalem, he said, and wait. Something will happen. Jesus mentioned something about his father's promise, but what was it? What could possibly happen next? They don't know exactly. Time has passed. It's now the day of Pentecost. The city is bustling. Streets are filled with pilgrims from all over the world. And what are these disciples doing? Well, they're getting scared. Among them, there is this mounting sense of uncertainty about the future. They begin their hand-wringing. Why is nothing happening? Had they misheard Jesus? Had they misunderstood his instructions? As these questions swirl in their minds, they, they, they wade and they try to pray just like Jesus had taught them to pray. But it, it's getting harder to concentrate. Their worries cause them to lose focus. Of course, they try to snap themselves out of it and pray some more. But doubts continue to creep in and continue to encroach on their prayers. And at the very moment when it seems like they're going to be overwhelmed by anxiety and the despair of unbelief, they hear something. It starts out faint, but it's getting louder now. The sound builds and builds until suddenly the doors and the windows of that dark room are blown wide open. A mighty rushing wind is coming through. The room that only moments ago was dark and hushed is now filled with the marvelous light of tongues of fire that dance over the heads of these feeble, doubting, bumbling disciples. What Jesus had promised is now happening. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the promise. This is the gift. This is what he spoke of. When he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. He will give you the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will soon be in you. So what I want to do with the time we have remaining is I want to give you three ways that this gift of Pentecost makes all the difference when it comes to prayer. Of course, we cannot define, let alone exhaust, all that the Spirit is doing in our lives when we pray. But I'm, So I'm not going to attempt that. But what I am going to attempt is to remind you of three truths about the Holy Spirit that I hope and pray will encourage you when you feel too weak to continue prayer. So here's the first one. In your weakness, the Spirit bears witness to you you are a child of God. What we're talking about here today, what we're celebrating and remembering, this, this gift of Pentecost, this is exceedingly precious to me on a personal level. I'm going to speak autobiographically here for a moment. There have been times in my own Christian life where I have been exasperated by my inability to pray. I've thought to myself, I've been a Christian for years now. How is it that I'm not better at this? How is it that I'm still getting so 
distracted. Why do I not desire to pray? And I know that this, this glorious invitation that I've received, it's, it's the privilege above all privileges that I get to come and relate to God. But why is it that there are about a million things I would rather be doing right now? What is wrong with me? I don't know about you, but for me, that's a really disturbing thought. It unsettles me to my core. Because if I'm honest, there have been times when this has led me to wonder, does this affect my standing with God? Like my lack of appetite for prayer. Does this mean that I'm, that I'm backsliding, that I'm, that I'm drifting away from him? And when I get into that headspace, right, when I get into that, that mode of thinking, what I need most is for the spirit of life to break through the cloudiness and confusion of those thoughts, and I need him to bear witness within me that I belong to the Father. I am a member of his household. I am his child. And there is nothing that can change that. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what the Spirit is there to do. He's there to remind us of this. He is an ever-present witness about the Father's unchanging, undying love for you. That's why Paul goes on to say, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. See what kind of love the Father has for us. See what kind of love it is that the Holy Spirit is shedding abroad in our hearts here and now that we would be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And the reason that we can say this today is because of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What this tells us is that our weakness in prayer, our inability to pray, this is no indication of how God sees us. This is not a reflection of his heart toward you. God does not need you to feel good about your prayer life in order to be well pleased with you. Let me ask you something. When God looks upon you, what do you think he sees? I'm not asking for the theological answer. I know that already. Most of you know that. It's not what I'm looking for. What I'm asking for is about you personally. When God looks at you, what do you think he sees? How would you answer that question? I'll tell you what he doesn't see. He doesn't see a no good loser who can't string two prayers together. That's not what he sees at all. Instead, what he sees is the spotless righteousness of his son who never failed at prayer. And because of him, he is well pleased with you. He regards you as his dear child. Another way that Paul says the spirit helps us is by interceding for us according to the will of God what it says in both verses 26 and 27. So that's the second truth of, about the Spirit that I want to remind you about today. That on your behalf, the Spirit prays all that you are hindered from praying. 
In the words of Bon Jovi, we're all living on a prayer here. And I mean that. I mean it literally. We are living on the prayers of the Spirit on our behalf. I mean, we've been talking about this great conundrum of the Christian life, that it can feel like there's so much working against us in prayer. But here we're finding that there is one who is working for us in prayer, who is greater than anything that might be working against us. And this is the great resolution to our conundrum. That the Spirit helps us in our weakness by his intercessory work. So how does he do this? How does he accomplish this? Well, Paul says that it has something to do with groanings that are too deep for words. There's a lot of debate about what this exact phrase means. So I'll just give you my two cents. You can go read about it elsewhere if you want other perspectives on it. My sense is that I don't think what Paul has in mind here is audible groanings, like literal audible groanings. Like it's not as if your prayers have to sound like you've just eaten some bad Taco Bell. I don't think that's what's being suggested. Instead, when Paul mentions groanings here, I think what he has in mind is those inward longings of the heart that we cannot even begin to articulate. This is the place where our vocabulary begins to break down. It begins to fail us. You see, when the Spirit takes up residence within us, he he begins to create new desires in our hearts, new appetites. Our hearts begin to to beat with new enthusiasm for the things of God. That's what Paul is getting at. He's describing these desires that arise out of a regenerate, spirit-filled heart. And there are times when those desires simply cannot be expressed in words. We can't put words to our desires. This reminds me of some of the parenting experiences I've had. We've had four little kids running around our house. And most recently, our younger daughter, Polly, when she's trying to to tell us something, she's doing her level best to to describe what it is she wants to say, but like we can't understand. It's not computing, right? There's a, a communication breakdown because her desires are now exceeding her ability to formulate the words that she wants to get out. I mean, you can relate to this, right? You know what that's like. You, you know what it's like to have a, a longing in your heart that you can't even begin to put into words. Right? You, you, you've, you've tried to explain it to someone, or maybe you think about trying to explain it to someone, but you're worried that you're just going to come off sounding a little crazy. Right? Well, here's the thing. In the Holy Spirit, you have a friend who never thinks you're crazy. He's the one friend that you have, that will never draw that conclusion. Paul tells us that when our words fail, the Holy Spirit knows exactly what to pray on our behalf. He is never at a loss for the perfect prayer just for you. He has the exact right prayer that you need. He's the ultimate prayer partner. Because he takes that perfect prayer that he has just for you, and he uses it to fulfill God's purposes for your life. He takes our failure in prayer and he turns it into the ultimate success. Through the intercession of the Spirit, your prayer, the longings of your heart are perfectly conformed to the will of your Father who is in heaven. 
This is because of the knowledge that the Holy Spirit has. He intimately knows your heart. But not only that, he perfectly knows the Father's will. The Holy Spirit is your omniscient intercessor. Verse 27. Paul tells us that he who searches your heart knows the mind of the Spirit. Paul says that the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Friends, it's no wonder that the Spirit's prayers are always answered. Because the mind of the Spirit and the will of God, they are one and the same. Our triune God has one will, one purpose for your life. And those who are called according to that purpose, Paul goes on to say in verse 28, that he works all things together for good. That's what the Spirit is doing in his intercession for you. He is making sure that everything that's going to happen in your life results ultimately in your highest good. And the only thing left to ask is, what is that? What is your highest, ultimate, supreme good? Verse 29. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That brings me to the third truth I want to remind you of. That for your good, the Spirit is seeing to it that through prayer, you become like the firstborn. You become like the firstborn. What it means is that your intercessor within will make you glorious like your intercessor who is in heaven. Paul says in the very next verse that your destiny in the Christian life is to be glorified with and in Jesus Christ. There is no better work that the Spirit could be doing than that. Becoming like the firstborn is the supreme good of your life. God the Son passed through this earth as a man. He walked in our shoes. And the scriptures tell us that as a man, Jesus bore our sins. He literally took our sins onto his shoulders and he carried them to the cross where in his death, he paid our penalty. He paid the price for us. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet this slaughtered lamb did not stay dead. Though he passed through the grave, death could not contain him. The grave could not hold him. And so in his body, he got up and he walked out of that tomb. Forty days later, he walked into heaven. He who had passed through the earth and who had passed through the grave is now our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God who lives always and ever to make intercession for us that we might be saved to the uttermost. He is seated on high in unspeakable glory and majesty. His face is now shining brighter than a thousand suns shining at full strength. And one day, we will get to see him. Our eyes will gaze upon him. You'll be able to forget what your mother told you. With Jesus, it'll never be impolite to stare. We will behold him face To face in his glory. Yes, today we find ourselves too weak to pray. 
We find ourselves beset with weakness, but that's just because what we will be has not yet appeared. We know that when he appears, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. That veil that separates us from the glory of Christ will be forever removed and we will commune with him face to face and we will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And everything I'm telling you, everything I'm reminding you of, it all comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is why the gift of Pentecost is such good news for people like us. In this life, we often find ourselves ignorant, suffering, distracted, and beset with sin. We are far too weak to pray as we ought to pray. But one day we will be changed. One day what Jesus is, we will be also. The Spirit will make sure of it. He will see to it. He is the guarantee that it will happen. So keep believing him as he reminds you that you are a child of the living God. Keep relying on him to pray for you when you are too weak to pray. Keep trusting that he will bring about your highest good in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do these things and you will come to find that the conundrum of the Christian life is actually no conundrum at all. It is instead a way for us to experience the all-sufficient grace of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The God who has spared no expense to have unending communion with the likes of us. Because he really does love us that much. Church, will you pray with me? Jesus, we ask you now, teach us to pray. Not just what to say when we're praying, not just the words to use, although we certainly want to know that. Teach us also what it means to fully rely on your spirit when we pray. Grant, Lord, that we would walk in the fullness of this gift that we've received, the gift that you poured out on the day of Pentecost. Lord, we love this gift. We love the Holy Spirit. We want to know him more. So Lord, would you help us to abide in him as our closest companion and friend. We pray in your name for your glory. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.